Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This panel was recorded at a seminar at Gen Con 2018, featuring Jason Pitt, Anna Mead, Jerry Grayson, Sarah Doombringer Richardson, and Eloy LaSanta. Thanks to all the presenters for this excellent and note to our seminar, and enjoy. Introduction to RPG Design and Publishing, Episode 170. You are allowed to cuss as much as you'd like. That's Thank right. Just Listen, be a fucking lady. Sarah. That's right. <laughs> Just so I you, fucking will. That's right. Just so you They're guys know, we here, work right? blue in here. Uh, <laughs> um, Although I will note there is theoretically an 11-year-old who we will be attending, and we may may limit it to a limit on the cussing scale. Well, see, that's what they get. (laughs) No full-on Bluebeard's Bride actual plays, please. I can try. Some kind of censored That's right. Limited to zombie world, okay? PG-13, you get one. Yeah, we get one. Or better yet, we'll do it like they do like on TNT. Like we'll be like those mother truckers. Oh, <laughs> forget him. Hilarious. Yeah, we'll just start, we'll we'll make up like our own uh, words and then. I'm just planning on cussing in French, honestly. Oh, see, there you go. I'm that just gonna make up words fair. and then it'll be fun that uh, well, you guys get to figure out what I'm saying. You and your French privilege. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> there he is. Oh, that's, that's true. Fair. Welcome, Eloy, the Magnificent, the Tom. So, we were all waiting for you. We're all staring at you. Eloy, Eloy. Let's start the introductions. Uh, so, my name uh, is Jason Pitt of Death of Legend Publishing. You may know me uh, from such things as former judge of the Indie Groundbreaker Award, publisher of SIG, uh, the Manual of Primes, uh, runner of the uh, RPG Design panel cast, and one of the founding members of the Indie Game Developer Network. To my left is the Magnificent. Anna Mead, hi. <laughs> I was like, do you get to say my name? That's Am right. I going to say my name? Okay. The Magnificent and not as famous, but that's okay. I was a featured presenter last year at Gen Con. I'm one of the <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm one of the designers of uh, the Dystopian Universe role-playing game, mm. which is just now coming out. For those of you who kickstarted it, thank you. That's right, I kickstarted it. I got my bank account. Thank you. Thank you. Playtesters, we have in the audience. Thank you guys so much. I own Blue Gables Publishing. Um, and I've been playing since very early versions of D&D, which we're not going to talk about. Awesome. Yes, I'm Jerry Grayson. I uh, designed Guys and Agenda, Hellas, uh, Worlds of Sun and Stone, Atlantis Second Age, um, and other little stuff. Uh, I've been playing since like the olden days. Well, not the olden, olden days. Not the er days, but close enough to the er days. Before pencils? Uh, yeah, we actually, um, we used like finger bones and stuff like that. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yep, so yeah, I've been gaming since like 1981 because I'm old. Uh, read a lot of comics, watch a lot of cartoons, and stuff like that. And I'll be here to crush your dreams. 
Oh yeah, we all do that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, Sarah Doombringer. I'm part of Magpie Games. I'm one of the co-creator of Bluebeard's Bride and designer of Velvet Glove. Game of the year. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> um, and best art. <laughs> and Emmy uh, Award nominee. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I got my start in the RPG industry, well, first as a player. Um, but whenever I started working professionally, I did illustration and, and layout. Although now I also do game design. You did artwork for some of my stuff. That's right. I'm oh, proud of that artwork. That's right. <laughs> uh, and I'm Amoy Lasanta. I am the owner of Third Eye Games. I'm the part owner of New Agenda Publishing. Mm, uh, I do work with uh, John Wick's Presents. I've published several games of my own, such as Part-Time Gods, Ninja Crusade, The Pip System, and uh, also have worked on other projects such as The World of Darkness, Firefly, and whatnot. Um, so yeah, and then... Yeah, and, I, and New Agenda is also partly owned right. by this joker over here with the dreads. That's right. Um, so <laughs> Forgot about and, that. Um, yeah, so we're geared to talk about game design or something. And of course, the third member of your company is... That's right. Misha Bushager, yeah. <laughs> she is not here. She isn't here, sadly. <laughs> but, but she is so awesome. That She is very awesome. She's out doing a Spartan run. And uh, she's also... Um, she does uh, part-time, like... Um, Assassin work, so <laughs> she's yeah she's right now in uh, Canada, like uh, ice and somebody, but we shouldn't talk about. <laughs> and she was also a contributor to hashtag Finland, <laughs> which is also up for an anyway. That is true. <laughs> All right, so this is a two-hour seminar, two note, which means that we can actually dig into some of this content. So some general ground rules. Uh, we've already solicited a good list of questions up front, uh, so we'll be using those in the front half of the discussion, and I'll be sharing them with uh, our fine panelists. I'm actually acting as the moderator, although I have a few opinions that I'll be sharing throughout, but for the most part, I'm mostly going to be deferring to the expertise and excellence of these four magnificent <laughs> human beings. Um, so... Um, this is going to be broken up into three sections. Part one, introduction to design, um, is going to take us most of the first hour. And this, this is where we're going to be talking um, about actual game design. How to design a game, how to do it uh, well, how to do playtesting, um, how to design games that are compelling and interesting uh, and get played at the table. Part two. Introduction to publishing. That's where we talk about the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of how to make products and sell products, um, including hiring people to do things for you. There's a number of fine professionals you can hire to do things for you in this room, just saying. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third part is going to be a more of a Q&A um, that uh, we'll be uh, structuring uh, uh, I will be going through, at the end of um, the first section, I'll um, have some um, index cards that I can pass around to people, so you can write your questions, and then I will be able to announce them to the panelists and possibly pitch them to specific panelists who right. I know will have answers. That's right. So, to get started, what is game design? 
Anna, why don't you start? Right. Oh, we'll just go right right. Right. Okay. That's right. So, um, for me, game design is finding a way to communicate to an audience you don't know this story and experience you're trying to share. So whether that's a world from scratch that is your own creation, whether that's inspired by different um, novels and uh, stories that you've read. Like for me, when you're designing a game, I like the mechanics to be almost invisible. Not everybody is like that. Some people really love super crunchy mechanics and tons of rules. For me, I don't want the mechanics to get too much in the way of the story. But for me, game design is, can I help share the experience that I had in my head with somebody else whom I have never met? Good. Mine, uh, it's, to me, because I'll, I'll speak a lot in metaphors and allegories and stuff, but mine is basically, my idea of it is that I'm making a recipe for a cake. Mm. And the only way like I can translate that is by codifying it. And once I codify it, you guys can make that cake as well. Um, the cool part is, is that everyone here who likes to cook, you guys all put, you know, it's like jazz. Like you'll get the recipe, but then once you get it, you will make, you'll put your own like spin on it. And that's what makes it cool for me, is that someone will take something that I've written down or that I've tried to present and they will take something and make something surprising. Um, so yeah, it's like if I gave you a recipe and you guys are making the cake and which would probably be a German chocolate cake because that is probably the best cake. You guys are welcome. And, uh, <laughs> I do want to fight over that. that red velvet. Red yeah. velvet. No, cake. that's low hanging fruit of cakes, man. That's just chocolate cake with some red. It's food only if in you it. do it poorly. And yeah. And that's how addition wars start. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sarah. Uh oh, she's uh -oh. taking a drag. It's gin in there, by the way. What? <laughs> 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 so, uh, so for me, there there's two sides that are complementary um, and overlap, but might at times be separate. So there's uh, whenever you're designing uh, for stuff that is like an existing system, you're trying to think of something fun to run your friends through. Um, you know, from the the creator side, this looks like doing uh, adventures and stuff for other people's. Uh, gaming systems um, but you have this this fun idea and so you write up a dungeon or whatever it is uh, the other side that that can definitely overlap and be the same is uh, having an idea based on a personal experience and wanting to share that experience to other people especially if they don't have that experience themselves so in my case since a lot of my games deal with being female, um, it's a way of sharing that experience with other people so they have a better understanding of what it's like to be me. Oh, oh, oh it, sounded, oh, it sounded like you had more. <laughs> I probably do, but I think stop. That's right. Did. Well, I won't stop. I'll just keep talking. <laughs> um, <laughs> you do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, for me, I mean, I'm going to mirror a lot of the stuff that they said, uh, though for me, I'm going to have the counter argument to Anna's original uh, statement of not wanting the mechanics to get in the way. Mm. Uh, that's definitely the goal. You don't want them to get in the way, but you also don't want them to be invisible. Uh, when I do game design, what I do is I attempt to challenge myself to use mechanics to push story forward and to make that experience happen. 
because we all can just tell stories in a room and just talk all day mm -hmm. and then like why do you have to buy the book uh, so mm -hmm. you know so <laughs> what I want to do is create a book that will tell you how to have that experience and use rules and dice and mechanics and whatnot to do that and also using that to challenge myself and to challenge conventions within the RPG industry so that's uh Thing. Well, and perhaps I should amend. Invisible maybe isn't the best word, which, but it is to say, like, not having to check the book every five yeah. minutes for that role you forgot. So I like elegant design. Well, like, and, it's, and it's not that you're, I wasn't like calling you out specifically, because that's an argument that I've heard a lot. He doesn't like that's German like, chocolate cake. That is a, exactly, no. <laughs> I'm allergic to chocolate! <laughs> Then you can't enjoy the velvet uh, cake either. That. No, actually, it's that's some people yeah, want angel food cake, mm. and that's fine. That is a good one too. But you gotta just say it. Strawberries. Really? Mm, strawberries are good. But uh, no, I, I get it. I get both sides. Cause yeah, you want to, you want the design to facilitate what you're doing, but you don't want it to uh, overburden you exactly. with um, with a whole bunch of cruft. And as like designers, and I'm assuming like all you guys are designers and want to publish or want to execute on a game, because you guys all have that fire in your belly. Um, and one of the biggest things about like, you know, design is that, like my biggest problem is like self-editing. Like I will just, just vomit stuff like onto a page and it won't stop, it's like a fever dream. And I'll think it's the best stuff ever. And then like you'll come back later and you'll look at it and you're like, man, what the heck was going on? <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, you you uh, the design. That's yeah, basically your framework. It's your, um, you know, it's 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 everything that everything else is going to be built on. And if you have the wrong design, it's like you know the wrong recipe or the wrong house. Because you know if you're uh, building a house for a family, but you know you end up with like some kind of little Winnebago, it's just not going to work. So. Uh, you want to design for what you're doing. It's a rich tapestry. There's room for all different yes. types of games. Like, there is Absolutely. no one right way to write a game. And we're not here to tell you you have to remake your game into the vision of one art. Eloy is here yes. to tell you you need to remake it. That's no, right. Honestly, for me, it's, it's if it was easy to design your game, you need to go back and you need to yeah, challenge that's yourself That's probably more. true. <laughs> like, the entire, like, I spend like, probably like a year and a half, two years designing each of my games because each one is me evolving in my game design. And I'm like, I did that last time. Let's do this now. Yeah, this one was you five know. years. This is like. Okay, there you go. One year. Yeah. And, and also, if, if you're like, oh, it's done and that was easy and I'm so happy to be done, you're not done. You're not, you're not done. done. Yeah, you're, you're not Pretty done. Much. Welcome to playtesting. <laughs> we'll get to that in a bit. That's right. Uh, um, also, when we're talking about there's all forms of games, mm -hmm. we really mean it. Mm. So, at the Indie Groundbreaker Awards last night, uh, which was a lovely uh, event, uh, I sam simultaneously saw one person walk away with a 400-page book about zombies and capitalism called Red Markets. That was awesome. And someone else handed me a thin strip of uh, a game stapled uh, that was about uh, a barber, a person getting their hair cut, and the watchers from the other side of the mirror. <laughs> um, that was probably about ten like little thin strip pages long. Anything in this spectrum is acceptable. 
and there's probably stuff on for both ends of there that you can still experiment with. There is a business card RPG. Do you, do you guys remember Prawn? Do you remember Prawn? Oh, Prawn. The game you play in a pool, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. Um, so, yeah, it, there's a lot of room to play in this space. <laughs> do you remember Hit a Dude? Do you guys remember Hit a Dude? Yep, Hit a Dude. It was, it was Hit a Dude. It was like at Gen Con, like like four or five years ago. Yep. It was Ryan Macklin, and oh. literally, as he hands you, he hits you and he hands you a card and says, "Now you have permission to go hit somebody else." Wow, and it became that, like a whole game. That absolutely and, cannot work. Oh my god, it was so fun. Though. We do not recommend that. Yeah. Do not assault people. Yeah. Please don't take that away as a lesson from this yes. panel. But it was fun. Um, and we will talk about safety mechanisms in a little bit as well <laughs> on a related note uh, because that, that's a serious thing that, that we do talk about uh, later on but let's get some of the basic uh, theory bits out of the way yeah. so I want to talk about the big four yeah let's do it uh, who wants to go first Jerry. Uh, I'll go first. Jerry. Yeah. Jerry wants to go first. That's he right. Does. I can feel yeah, it. Yeah, I wanna I wanna uh, blow these out so I can get out of here. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, <I> just, <laughs> no, what's your game about? This one to me is probably one of the most important ones because a lot of people want to write games. Um, um, I'm into all sorts of geekery, so I want to make cartoons. I want to write comic books. I want to write role-playing games, but it all comes down to what's it uh, about because that's going to inform like a lot of your other decisions. Um, so for instance, if you're making you know, your standard action adventure game, does it do action adventure? Um, some people want to make like games about relationships or romance or a soap opera, but if you don't have the basis of what your game's about and you can't push toward that, then it's going to fall flat. Once you do it, you're going to realize it's like, oh, I just made D&D, but now it's Downton Abbey D&D, uh, <laughs> which could actually be really cool. But you know, if you're, I know exactly that would be kind of crazy. <laughs> Do some upstairs, downstairs with uh, some uh, D and D. But the thing is, is that you have to know what your game about. Like um, with uh, one of my games, Hellas, uh, I didn't want to just do a space opera. So, and Hellas is basically a Greek space opera. Um, and so I had to focus and zero in on what I wanted to do because I could have just said, okay, it's a space opera, and everyone's wearing like goofy helmets and you know, shooting lasers, but that would have, you know, that's, it, it, it just wouldn't have resonated as much, uh, at least for me. I don't know how, like, you know, it, it resonated for everyone else, because that's for, you know, the people who bought the book or pirated it to decide. But um, that's where you have to start. That is your, the, the, the one nascent point that you have to uh, uh, execute on hard is what the game is about. And when doing that, um, in your minds, what I would suggest doing um, and this was taught to me early. Um, I released my first role-playing game in 2002, um, back when I was in my uh, 50s. And um, the, uh, you needed an elevator pitch. Um, and it's basically, if you had to explain your game, because sometimes your game will be sprawling, but if you can't distill it down to like something where someone's gonna go, oh, okay, I get that. Like um, uh, Sarah Richardson described her new game, oh gosh, what's it called, see now, uh, we're going. We're going to do all the a uh, round of pitches, explain, answering these four questions. When we're done, ah, it's explaining what right. these questions are. Kool Aid. So that's that's what I got for about what the game's about. Yeah. Um, the other thing to think about is, depending on how elegant a game, I guess you want to say you're designing. Um, you also want to. It's like, how are you doing this as a metaphor? So, for example, if you're like 
really into community organizing and race relations, you can make a game about that. Or you can make a game that is uh, in the guise of this is a game about urban fantasy where you are different groups of monsters who have to learn how to live with each other, i.e. urban shadows. Um, so sometimes whenever you go straight at the idea, it does not work. And you need a metaphor to, to have people experience it. Just like with Velvet Glove, yeah, teenage girl gangst, yeah. Uh, but you have to put it in the 70s so that there's enough distance that people can be comfortable with it. Okay. <laughs> um, I think also, I mean, I think the, the elevator pitch is really the biggest thing for me. I've had so many people come up and go, you know, I'm a game designer too, and I go, cool, tell me about your game. And they go, well, it's set in the world of this, and there's this sprawling <laughs> religion, and politics are over here, and I'm uh, what? I'm like, mm -hmm. what would I be doing in your game? Um, so yeah, anyway. That's the biggest thing, so Jerry already kind of addressed it, so. Because Jerry knows stuff, sometimes. That's right, sometimes. Sometimes. So, uh, so we've gone through one, have we gone through two and three? No. Um, two? We could do uh, two. The how does your game uh, do this, which is really important. Um, there's a lot of people, like a lot of times, like people want to remake D&D, which is fine. But they'll say, I want to do this instead of that. But they'll say, well, can I play D&D with your system? And I'll go, well, you can, but you know, it probably won't work like D&D because the best game to play D&D is D&D. D&D does dungeon crawls and it does it well. Um, you know, um, and that's the great thing about D&D. You know, and everyone has like, their personal like, uh, preference on to what game they like. But this game does this. Savage Worlds does you know, its thing. And it has its own unique funk to it, if you want to say that. Like, it, you know, no matter what game you play in that system, it's going to feel like Savage Worlds or GURPS or the Fate system in a way, you know. So, like, that's when you see, like, um, if you go online and you'll see someone did, like, um, uh, a hack for Star Wars in D&D. &D, or they did a hack for Star Wars and Savage Worlds. Mm -hmm. It feels like those systems. Um, and what I try to do is try to narrowly focus the game so it executes on what I want to accomplish as opposed to making it generic enough so that I can, you know, say, I can get all the Savage World players or I can get all the fake guys. It's like, no, I want to be completely unsuccessful and make a system <laughs> that the eight people who buy my games will buy. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> so, I, think, I think I've got like 10 people buying mine. Yeah, exactly. I'm at least a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if you... <laughs> You can hack a game and that's fun and you can use that for your own sort of personal use. Um, if you want to like make your own system, just be aware that is maybe a lot more it work. Is a lot like of work. this this game uses fate and fate can be used by any of you. I'm not saying you have to use fate, but there are other systems that are also available to use powered by the apocalypse. There are many great systems out there and yes. finding a rule system that works with your idea is sometimes a much better idea than being like, oh, I've got to create all this from scratch because your play tests are going to be longer. You have to go back to the drawing board five times as much, probably 20 times as much, honestly, yes. uh, just to make sure your game works in all situations. So if you are just dead set on writing your own game system, that's okay. But just be aware if nobody's heard of your game system, you are potentially limiting yes, your audience. It is a harder push. And I'm not saying not to use like other ex existing systems, right. but even when you do, because you know, with your game, you've put stuff in there that makes it right. 
We not adapted just, it. Yeah, it's not just generic. This is not straight Fate Core. This is an adapted version of Fate because yep. this game requires backstabbing and betrayal mechanics, which yeah. uh, Fate doesn't really do very well. <laughs> if you've ever played Fate, it's like, oh, guys, let's all go together. So for the backstabbing well, it's part... friendly backstabbing. Right. No, this is not friendly backstabbing. <laughs> this is like, we're going to betray you and get you killed. So in order to do that, we had to like totally like reboot and blend and try to, and that took several rounds of playtests, even using Fate as a base. So just be aware that what you're getting yourself into probably a multi-year process yes. if you decide to write a game from scratch. Yeah, that's actually what I was going to say as well, is that because I've, I've kind of come at it from all of the different angles. I've licensed other systems, I've designed my own systems, I've converted games over to other systems, and I've done it all. Uh, I, honestly, converting systems is often harder than just designing my own. Yes. Uh, so Sometimes, a lot yeah. of the time I'll just Can be like, how do I make this system do that thing? Why don't I just make a system that does that thing? Um, but it does it, it does limit your it does limit your audience initially, unless it's good. And then will love it. Every system that she just mentioned started as a book that mm. people picked up and they said, hey, this is really good. I'm going to make games with this now. So I, wouldn't, I would also say like, you shouldn't str you know, stray away from making your own game. Uh, I almost exclusively make my own games and I have converted and done stuff a few times. And you've created so, a framework for yourself that works as a publisher, like, right. you know, so people, if you're just going to be on your own, like you need to understand you must have playtests. Must. There's yes. no getting around that. You must have an editor. You must have all these different things. There's no choice. If you put a game out there that is unedited and unplay-tested, well... I mean, nowadays. Yeah. Standards were way lower before. Well, that's true. Uh, <laughs> well, nowadays, you, you won't survive nowadays if you don't have yeah. those things. <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, the other two questions, let's just yeah. pump those out and then give more of the random theory. Uh, how does your game encourage and reward this? So, when we were talking about all these systems, mm -hmm. so Fate Core is a beautiful example of something we can talk about. How does your game encourage and reward this? It's a game of pulpy action. The mechanics say that effectively, uh, when you make a dumb move that is in character, you get currency in the mm -hmm. form of Fate Points. You can then use those fate points to hand solo your way out of problems. Mm -hmm. That is, it encourages you to be a big personality, bold, uh, pulpy action hero who's going to take off his shoes and walk over broken glass because yep. I'm John McClane. <laughs> that's right. Um, be, that's how the mechanism supports the style of play, which also means that if you're trying to do a pulpy action movie game, that's a good foundation to work off. If you're trying to do something that's um, bare bones, gritty, um, trying to deal with uh, the poverty cycle in <laughs> Victorian England, <laughs> it's not gonna work clearly not quite as well. Mm -hmm. um, there are other games that will cover that style of play. Powered by the Puck. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or Dungeon World Classics. That's right. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, uh, that's how does your game encourage and reward this? Well, I mean, how does your game encourage and reward this? A lot of games do experience points. Mm -hmm. <laughs> fate does like fate points. 
uh, you know, uh, that's other... its carrot. Yep. What's that? It's it's it's, it's a carrot. It's it it yeah. It helps um, um, basically makes you do uh, or actually pushes you in that direction to do that thing. Right. Um, so you know, if you do the crazy thing, if you you know, you'll get the fate point. Um, right. And so, there's and there's a reason why D and D is a game about killing stuff and taking its things because you get rewarded with experience for everything you murder. Right. Um, so, yes. Uh, so it's, it's like so like my games are like you get experience if you do teamwork yeah. and if you do this and you do that because that's what I want to encourage at my table. Well, and, you and, know, so. and fate rewards not just doing the big choice, but sometimes doing the difficult, painful choice. Yes. Um, Brian Ingard, who's sitting right over there, the famous game designer, he did Becoming here. He often, when he plays his games, he'll look at you and say, would you like to succeed at a cost? And that is um, kind of at the core of some of this game design, is how do you get people to do the, because if they're only doing the easy, heroic thing, like how do you get them to do the interesting thing? For me, it's easy, because I like for my characters to have tragic stories. Yeah. So I'm like, oh yeah, no, she's totally gonna do the stupid thing that's going to screw her over. Oh yeah, no, but yeah, yeah, I'm doing that. Yeah, suffering is fun. But when you can build that into the game, because not everybody's like that, and you want to kind of like figure out what kind of behavior you want to encourage, and then reward that, because you don't necessarily want to do the D and D thing of, oh, you kill the monsters, you get the money, you get the rewards. Like that's not necessarily right for every game. And you should also remember that you don't have to put a thing in a game. Right. So if you're trying to make a game that is about relationships, mm -hmm. you do not have to have fighting mechanics if you don't yeah. want people to fight. Um, you probably have to have bickering mechanics if it's yes. a game about relationships. That's right. <laughs> but not fighting mechanics. Well, well, right. You need a well, conflict, conflict mechanic. Conflict. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. But, but yes. Don't, don't think that just because <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Um, you it's not think that kind your of game. players will try to do this thing that you need to support it mechanically because you're telling them what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and if they don't want to do those things, they shouldn't play your game. Mm -hmm. yep. And last sense. one. Can we talk about... Uh, th this is a trick question because it's an old question. Uh, uh, how do you make this fun? Fuck your fun. Yeah! yeah. <laughs> so, really. the correct... For, for form of this question is how do you make your game engaging? Yes. Um, well, it's to me it's subject matter. It's it's what the game's about. Because um, it, it, you know, like essentially these the, the these four questions are like building blocks to get you there. And um, and even if like yeah, if if your game is uh, if you made a game about backgammon, and that's the game you want to make, it's the game about backgammon then make that game about backgammon, and you'll find your audience. There will be someone out there going, jackpot, backgammon oh God, game, yes. you know what I mean? Because um, you're not gonna please everyone. And when I first started out, I wanted to please everyone. So you'd put a little bit of this in, or you'd play a game, and you're like, I'm gonna make it a little bit like White Wolf, I'm gonna make it a little bit like this. And then one day it occurred to me that like, I'm the one like, uh, you know, fronting the money for this, I'm gonna make the game that I wanna make. And so if I had to distill it down, it's like, whatever that fire is in your belly, if you can figure out some way to distill that out onto the page or uh, electronically or however else or however you're going to present the game and it's got soul and it's something that's weird and it's intangible but people know it when they see it. It's like when you listen to music and you can listen to a ton of music and you'll hear that one person sing and you're like something in that song touched me. And um, and that's ultimately what, like, what all creatives are trying to do is kind of you know distill their soul into whatever medium they're using 
to make someone else react to it. And uh, that's art. You know. And Make the game you want to play. True. You can, yeah, you yeah, can, the mercenary. Uh, Make buy the our books. Please. Yeah. Is, I mean, no, I'm serious about that because a lot of what I end up doing with my game design, again, I'm usually trying to challenge myself. I usually say, I would like to play this type of game. Does that type of game exist? Okay, cool. Uh, I'll right. play that game then. If it doesn't exist, ooh, could I make that? I wonder. Um, that's actually how Mermaid Adventures, which was a game that I've, that I've written, I wrote it for my daughter, because my daughter was really into mermaids at the time, and I wanted to find a game about mermaids, and there wasn't one. And I said, well then, it's done. I'm making a mermaid game. <laughs> and it launched a whole kids line, which is amazing. So. <laughs> Finding a gap in the market is smart, but don't chase the markets. Yeah, because it, yeah. it, it'll change If it's change already on out, and you're making a game about it, and it's coming out three years from now. It's already old news, friends. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Uh, so, due to time pressure, I'm just going to quickly run through a bunch of the stuff on this. <laughs> yeah. Machine gun them uh, because yeah. Tell us what you want to tell. So he <laughs> thought we'd be brief. Types. Uh, so um, types for, and then we'll uh, do some examples on design philosophy in our games. Um, so types of re re uh, resolution systems. When you want to find out, does a thing succeed? Yes or no. There's three sort of main ways that you can decide this at the table. Um, a lot of this is credited to some old sources like The Forge, uh, an old defunct theory uh, forum. Uh, so, uh, fortune, you use random chance. Roll dice, draw cards. Drama, you don't do what is narratively appropriate. Um, uh, what, what is the best choice for your protagonist on, in this situation? That is drama. Karma um, is you've got uh, the uh, ranked capabilities and it is fixed, if I recall correctly. Or is that a point-based thing? I'm trying to recall which one that one for. Karma. I don't know. I think this is some Canadian bullshit. Okay. No, I'm, not, some Canadian. Anyway, I'm not actually no. sure. <laughs> it, it, it's old forge theory. Okay. Um, but fun functionally, like, I am the best warrior, so I will always win in warrior conflicts. But um, Anna is likely the best leader, so if there's a, a leadership conflict, Anna wins. That kind of thing. Anyway. As a part of a drama mechanic, I'm going to challenge her for the leadership position. Okay. <laughs> what? Roll the dice. Trade. No, no, no. We're using the, the drama card. one. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Whichever one will cause the most drama okay. is the one. <laughs> That's right. Do we have to sit between you while you do that? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> We're going to spend the rest of this panel debating who should be leader of the panel. That's right. And chocolate cake. All I know is not me. <laughs> um, not it. And the mm. four structures are another random theory bit. Uh, so functionally, games are broken down into mm. four different components. System. What are the mechanics and rules that you use to do things? Setting, what is the fictional situation, uh, sorry, sorry, the fiction that surrounds things that you're playing in and exploring? Uh, situation, what is the specific context that is driving player characters to act in this setting and use those mechanics, working as a group or against each other, etc.? Why are people getting engaged? What, what is their purpose for being in this setting? And subtext. Uh, how intentional is this game about what it's talking about and what is it talking about? So, some games are good at, are, are stronger on these 
uh, for different structures compared to others. Yep. For instance, Dungeons and Dragons has a, has a solid system. Yep. This setting, the generic setting for Dungeons and Dragons is meh, meh. <laughs> Eberron, for instance, is a much more concrete and much more elaborate setting. So it's got a really strong setting. Situation. Okay, so you're all ad adventurers, likely doing, uh, going to a tavern, meeting up. It's a little wishy-washy. It's, it's not as strong as it would be. And that's why there's the trope of we go, go to a tavern and find the old man who is smoking a pipe and ask him for a quest. Would you like to because go on an adventure? Would you <laughs> I see a question mark over your head. That's right. Read that box Subtext. text or just scroll through it. This is where D&D falls down flat. <laughs> because a lot of the initial design decisions and setting stuff for D&D were not intentional choices. Um, as we talk about the drow, half orcs, um, let's just go in and murder large villages of uh, uh, monsters. Um, like there, there's a lot of stuff in there that is not actually, it was not an intentional choice by the designers. They were referring to um, original fictional sources and, and referring back to uh, Conan literature and they just adopted some of the subtext without looking at it critically. So all four of these areas, uh, and there, there's other light indie games that have almost no system, but the setting is great and are, have great subtext. Uh, like it's a wide range, but pay attention to these four structures of set, system, setting, situation, and subtext. Uh, so uh, Sarah, could you talk about the conversation? Uh, sorry, I'm struggling against being snarky. Um, so whenever you're sitting down at the table with me, um, it is a conversation. It's the story we're making together. No matter how much as GM, it feels like I am leading the story. So um, I'm assuming this is what Jason yes. wanted. Um, so, like, but there's the step before that, there's the step of designer. So, you have the idea for the game, and you really need to start thinking about, like, what are you saying to the players and what are they saying back? Um, because it's, a, it's really, at the end, kind of a collaborative experience. Um, you can force it, and you can skew it, and you can distort it. Um, but you're still going to have a conversation with the players where you you just say, hey, we're going to be orcs today and we're going to slaughter the humans. And they're going to come back and be, what? <laughs> what are you saying with that? Um, or, you know, today we are going to be kittens who have lasers for eyes and we're going to see what mischief we get into. And they'll come back and say, yes, kittens! You know. Um, so just to keep in mind that everything you do in the game ha does have to be intentional. And sometimes you'll get results that you don't expect. So that's where, once again, play testing and, and altering it, because just because your home group decides to set up a trap for Bluebeard that consists of punchy sticks doesn't mean that anybody else is going to, but you need to make sure they can't do that, because they will. <laughs> <laughs> they did. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think it is about setting expectations for what your game is. And, uh, like, uh, I have a few games that are, you are this kind of character and you do this in the game, and then people will come and say, well, can I do this in the game? And I go, I mean, this is, we're doing this over here, and you want to do that over there, I would probably suggest play a different game, because this game does this over here. Um, so honestly, that's, the, that's kind of the big yeah. thing, is like you, you kind of yeah. have to set expectations, and that's like at your table, yeah, but as a game designer, you have to set those expectations within the design of the game mm. as well. Kind of like what you were saying before, if you're making a relationship game, you probably don't want to have a bunch of fighting mechanics, because that's mm. setting the expectation that there's going to be domestic abuse. <laughs> uh, <so. laughs> or you're playing Prey Mantises. Or Ooh, you're, that's fair. See, but now that's cool though. There would really only be two roles. There would be the, the, the snatch the head off and then eat the head roll. <laughs> yes. like, right. That would be it. So. And those I are more like, like assassination mechanics, exactly. not fighting mechanics. <laughs> yeah. so. Sorry, but that's the thing, is whatever you design is what you're giving the you're giving the players the framework for what to expect in the game. So if you have a bunch of crunchy sci-fi and hacking skills and the hacking tree is like all is it, well this game must be about hacking, apparently, yeah. yep. because it's, this is all, I have 5,000 pages of hacking and there's like two of like diplomacy. So I guess this game's about hacking, mm -hmm. you know, so it's that sort of thing. So the way you design it and what you place emphasis on becomes part of the design. Like, don't lie to your players. <laughs> like he's Wait, why saying. Are you I didn't lie to my No, I'm agreeing with okay. you. Okay. <laughs> I don't lie to my players. I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh, don't lie to your players. Don't, 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 <laughs> don't lie to your players in that don't give them ways to do things and then be like, the game's not about that, really. Right. So, design philosophies in our game. So why don't we t uh, talk, each talk about one of our projects uh, and sort of relate it to some of the things that we just talked about. So let's start with Eloy. Oh, I get started. Yes. Yeah. Um, the main one that I, that I think applies to like all this stuff uh, is actually my newest game. It's uh, Part-Time God's second edition. Uh, and it's a game where you play regular people who have become gods through some sort of weird circumstance. Uh, but you are still very much a person and you still have like your job and your family and your friends and you have all of those things. Uh, it's actually, so that's what the game is about. Um, how does my game do this? Well, um, I guess I'm going to go through the questions. It gives you, uh, it, it uses like regular, traditional uh, game mechanics for D10s and all that stuff. Uh, some of the things that this game does that are unique are you have uh, both a wealth score and a free time score. And you have to kind of balance those things because as soon as you run out of free time, uh, some sort of responsibility that you have kind of jumps into the next scene and then you have to deal with it. Uh, so, and it doesn't always just happen then, but there's other things that, uh, involved with that. So the, the, the crux of the game is that you are that, you know, you're a brand new god, let's just say that of like the ocean or whatever, and you're like, I have to tend to the ocean and defend the oceans. Oh, God, my wife's calling. Hold on a second. <laughs> you know, it's like, and um, what I did, and what I did is like, there are mechanics, again, this is kind of what I was saying at the beginning, is like, it's not only just like in the narrative, hey, every so often the GM will throw your wife in. You know, it's like, no, in the mechanics, your life will invade your quest for godhood. Um, and like, you still have a job and you still have to go to work to make money, otherwise you will run out of money. And it's, it's a really awesome exercise in kind of mixing the fantastic with the mundane. And it's uh, such an amazing game. Uh, how does it reward? It, it actually, it's really cool 
the way that the game rewards kind of uh, buying in because a lot of the game design is you designing your character and you're deciding then what's important to your character. Um, and then it's my job as the GM or whoever the GM is to kind of design storylines for your character. Uh, for instance, I ran uh, one session where I had three gods and one of them went discovered serial killer classic you know, classic RPG, and the other one got approached by another god about taking down another god and like joining forces and all that stuff. And in the third one, um, he got a call from his brother who was in jail and he needed him to bail him out. Like that was his adventure, is that he because he didn't have a lot of money, so that was why. He, mm -hmm. So he had to go and figure out ways to make a bunch of money so he could bail his brother out. And like that might sound like it's completely boring, but that was like that player wrote his brother down, says, I have a troubled relationship with my brother and he's always asking me for stuff. And I'm like, well, that's a storyline right there. Um, so it's like, and that's kind of what that game is about. It's really kind of about, uh, it actually kind of mirrors like comic books and stuff like that, where it's like, you know, you have these newfound powers and what are you gonna do with them? How are you going to interact with your old life because now you are kind of a different person and that sort of thing. Um, so anyway. There you go. And how do you make it fun? Honestly, it's it's just me. I don't know. I don't know how I made it fun, <laughs> but it is. Um, <laughs> uh, it's 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 a really fun game. So anyway. Anyone else? Sarah. Jason. Oh, look at Sarah. Oh, okay. Yes, sir. I thought. <laughs> I, no, no, no. Let's just go this way. Yeah, right. I just figured we were going around. That's why um, you're the lead. <laughs> all right. So, uh, Velvet Glove is about teenage girl gangs in the 1970s, right? But it's really about uh, female solidarity. Uh, so the entire game is about how this gang of girls do not have the support from adults in society that we wish they did. Um, you know, they're poor, most of them are of color. Uh, they don't have great home lives. School may not be the most important thing to them, but they have each other. So the game really is about the relationship the girls have with each other, even though my game does this by pushing on that. Uh, so everything in the outside world uh, is really out to get them. Um, they're surrounded by men. Uh, men who look at them and don't see teenage girls, they see sex objects. Um, the best way to get money and get things that they need is to engage in criminality. And there's also a freedom in bucking this idea that you're supposed to be a good girl, you're supposed to go to school, you're not supposed to do these things. Instead, you get to do all of the bad things that you did not actually get to do when you were a teenager. So, my game encourages this mechanically, primarily, although fictionally as well. So it encourages this whenever, during character creation, I did something really mean. I give you just enough time to grow really attached to these girls and love them, and then I start hitting them with the terrible outside world. Mm -hmm. um, by slowing it down and making you decide, you know, what do they look like? What, what kind of makeup do they wear? What kind of clothes do they wear? You get a very strong sense of the character because that's what I want. I want you to, to really get in their heads and feel what they feel. And then um, their relationships with each other, uh, in an apocalypse world, you have something called bonds or ties or whatever word you want to use for it. But so by encouraging this, it, it draws all the players together very tightly, and they already feel like they're in a gang before we even start playing. Um, 
but then they start to, to play and they realize that really the only way they can interact with the world is through sex or violence. Because uh, that's kind of what our world tells teenage girls they can or shouldn't do. And it's actually fun, despite being <laughs> sounding kind of dark. Uh, it's fun because it ends up being this revenge fantasy. Um, you're the underdog, you've got all these things pressuring you, and in response, you get to fulfill the over-the-top, hyper-realistic exploitation movie of your dreams. Uh, it's set in the 70s, so it also has the exploitation movie vibe. Um, but these girls, they end up, they're like, oh, this teacher is sexually harassing me? Well, we are going to beat him down and humiliate him and take his car and we're going to drive it through his front door. You know, they just do these outrageously wonderful things. Um, so it ends up being this like kind of joyous rebellion against uh, what you're told you're supposed to do. Excellent. That's right, and that's uh, quite cool. And, and you wrote this? I did write that. But, but uh, so girl. <laughs> <laughs> no. Everything I could say to that is really obscene. I know exactly. That's right. I'm trying to get you to say it. <laughs> now, um, all my games—they—they're just there to tickle me. They, um, because yeah, like I said before, like at one time I tried to please everyone, but then one day it occurred to me that if I'm not having fun with the game, then you know it's not even worth doing it, um, because these things will get expensive, and uh, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But. Um, Hellas, um, basically it's a Greek space opera, and what I wanted to do with that one was distill it down to like if we were doing the Iliad or the Odyssey and um, making that real. So the sensibilities that we have now, you would not have in Hellas. Everything's about basically becoming immortal through your actions and your deeds. So um, one of the mechanics is um, basically your, your renown, um, your, your glory. And so Hellas encourages people to do stuff like they would do, for instance, um, in some games, you'll make a character and you will armor your character up. Whereas in Hellas, you can do that, or you can go into combat naked. You know, you just have a cape on. And yes. you will get way more glory for that than you will the guy who's running in with his powered armored suit. Um, also, I made rules for like blaspheming the gods, um, or basically praying to the gods for favor. Um, because that's a, something that you see a lot in like these um, the, the Greek heroic age is that either they were uh, beseeching the gods for something or they were you know saying God dang it I hate you so you would get glory for that too and basically the more glory you get the more awesome you become and the more glorious things you can do which means the more glory you can get which means the more awesome things you can do so it's a feedback loop and at first people they will not do it until they'll see that other people are getting glory for just doing just stuff. Like it's like I'm gonna throw my spear through that spaceship, um, and they'll be like, "Can you do that in this game?" It's like, "Yeah, you can do it," because there's also something in it called epithets, which makes just stuff. Yeah, just stuff. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, you can like there's uh, with the epithets. Every character has an epithet, so you could be you know ironed armed uh, Aeolus, and you get to define that however you want, or you can be you know um, you know keen eyed Ephigenia or something like that, and you get to define what that epitaph means, which means you get to do something that breaks the rules. So Iron Arm Eolus is like, okay, that spaceship is getting away. I'm Iron Arm Eolus. I'm going to hold the ship with my hand. So you can do what, you know, because you are known for that. So you can hold the ship there. Keen died, uh, Ephigenia. We could say, okay, you guys are on the planet. There's a, 
someone on the moon, she could say, well, I know they're on the moon because I caught a glint, you know, uh, uh, off their spaceship because she can. So um, there's mechanics in that that make you this Greek hero, but in the space opera sense. And there's other little stupid stuff that I put in there that tickles me. But um, you guys aren't here for me. I'm just up here holding down this seat because it's court ordered. And uh, <laughs> yes, I need to get this ankle bracelet off, so that's why I'm here. <laughs> I'm going. Oh my God. <laughs> How to follow all these wonderful so, people. Um, so I am setting obsessed. I am a designer who always thinks about setting first and how I make it work later. I wrote all the setting for the dystopian universe and one of the things we struggled with is first it was the idea they wanted to set it in San Francisco and I or cyberpunk San Francisco I'd never been to San Francisco and I was like well that that seems challenging uh, I feel like you should you don't have to always write with you know but it helps if there's a seed there somewhere some kind of personal experience so I decided to set it in cyberpunk Paris because I hadn't seen a lot of things set in Paris because it's an old world city with lots of art and culture and so many cyberpunk cities like Detroit, Tokyo, New York City, LA. We've seen these many, many times and I wanted to do something different. I have an art historian background. So for me to get a chance to like bring in the art and the culture of Paris where I've been many times, it was a super exciting thing. And so I built this sandbox. I'm like, okay, here's cyberpunk Paris and it's the resistance. And you are here, part of the resistance. When we started writing this book, it wasn't our uh, current climate. Um, <laughs> so I didn't expect to run into us actually living in a dystopia. Yeah. <laughs> and I will tell you, if you're a dystopia type of designer, there's a real challenge in, because everything you come up with, like things might actually get worse than you think. So yep. it's hard to keep ahead of like the lead there. But writing um, cyberpunk and dystopia is a form of resistance for me. So for me, it was a passion. And the resistance, um, it's not a bunch of white people. No offense, right? Like this room seems pretty white. So let me encourage you to put some diversity into your games because the world is a diverse place. So the leader of my resistance is an older black woman. Um, my resistance has LGBTQ. My resistance have people of all colors and religions and backgrounds and people who they love, you know, and genders and all of that. And I think that is very important nowadays. And you know, some people are gonna be like, okay, well you're shoehorning like political correctness. <laughs> it's not politically correct, the world is like that. And you can choose to only cater to a very select audience of this world, but as you see at this convention, gaming is becoming huge. 50, 60,000 people of all different types. And I have been playing since I was in seventh grade in 2011. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I read settings for D and D, and I had my little graph paper, and I made like the mountains and the little yep. taverns. I, like I, I built my world. So for me, the world is always first, and create that world and make it rich, and make it someplace that somebody would want to play in and be passionate about it. If you don't have any passion for your world, why would anybody else care? Right? So if you have like a vision, which I'm sure so many of you in this room have a vision, like you see that world. 
find a way to get it out there on paper and we'll talk about all the other challenges that come up but the first thing you have to do is have something cool and special and if you look around and you're like hey there are a lot of games like this find ways to change it tweak something make it different make it your own fantastic can i touch on something Anna? yeah um so also i think that kind of that plays back into the subtext conversation that we were having um like if you're going to write up this diverse world and stuff you shouldn't write it in a way of like hey look at me we're diverse by the way yeah um Don't do that. Because I remember that I had a game designer come over to me and said, you know, during the character creation for my game, um, you can choose any gender and all that stuff. I'm like, cool. They're like, well, how do I communicate that to people? I'm like, you just have it in your game, dude. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> it's just, if you want it to be there and it's important, have it there. Don't make it the selling point. Like, that's not going to sell the game for you. It should just be part of it. So yeah. anyway, I just no, that's to, that's a I just great to touch addition. On that too. Sorry. And some people are afraid to to add that stuff. And don't be afraid. Just be respectful. And if you have questions, you know, ask somebody in the community who's willing to tell you and pay them. Yeah. <laughs> pay them. Don't ask for their help for free. Yeah. So wanted, yeah. let's dig into playtesting because Ooh. we said this is important. What? Let's play talk testing. about why it's important. Playtesting. Um, so fundamentally, <laughs> playtesting is design. That is the process of design. Mm -hmm. What most people think of game design is actually the first step getting to your first playtest. Mm -hmm. Then you do iterations of playtesting and refine your design so it um, gets closer and closer to the thing that your game is about. Um, I actually tend to have an, a useful analogy for this in that, uh, for me, game designs are like um, cars. When you're, the first step is making something that is, looks vaguely like a car that has an engine that can start. <laughs> As you're playtesting, you're getting, you're reducing the number of times that the engine will stall. You're improving the suspension. You're making sure that uh, the steering wheel is actually hooked up to the uh, to the wheels. You're set, um, improving the various elements of the car, uh, and you can actually judge how well, how far along your playtest is by how smoothly it plays, how many interruptions there are, where are the places that don't quite feel right, where there's uh, there's a bad noise in the system. Um, so I have a, I have a game that's working pretty well. It tops out at third gear, but beyond that, it's pretty good. Um, I have other games that are still sputtering along and crash frequently. So playtesting is how you go from really rough ride to a Cadillac. So uh, what are good playtesters? Gosh. Good play testers. I used to have um, a play tester. His name was Terry, and uh, I used to call him the Breaker. And uh, no matter what I would make, he would he would figure out a way to break it. He would um, and but he wasn't a very good play tester because he would just min max the game. He would figure out a way to facilitate the character he wanted, and but he would just break the game. And for a while, 
my job, I thought, was to thwart him. So I would build, I would tweak the rules so that he couldn't break it. But then one day I'm realizing that this guy's a jerk. Like, why am I building a game to defeat a jerk, right? I'm trying to build like a game that people will enjoy, not to thwart Terry. So, um, a lot of times I have a point of view about what I want in the game and I'm focusing on that. Whereas everyone who's playing the game, they have their own agendas and they're coming along for the ride, but they want to make this type of character. And um, so as we're playing, they're informing me about, oh, I see a hole there. Um, and sometimes it's not a hole. Sometimes it's not even a problem. It's just something that they want that is, you know, that's their own agenda. But the thing is, is that through the rapport, they're going to give me ideas. They're going to help me um, fill gaps. They're going to help me see the game in a different light than what I'm seeing. Because, you know, like when you're in the shower and you're singing, it sounds awesome unless you're outside the shower listening. And then it's like, man, that guy is tone deaf. And that's one thing that, you know, playtesters help you not be is tone deaf. Um, because you could be coming up with something and then someone will say, wow, you know, we're making a game about, you know, uh, domestic violence. And you're like, oh, yeah, I guess it kind of does look like domestic violence. And you're like, I guess I have to go back because it's not about that. But, you know, and that's what um, your playtesters are doing. Your playtesters are, they're actually kind of co-designers in a sense that they are helping you not look like a fool during the end game. Hmm. Um, and a lot of people do. It's, it's <laughs> they're, they're co-designers, but playtesters also frequently make the mistake of thinking they need to fix the problem for you. Mm. Right. Like they will try and tell you what you should do. Mm -hmm. And um, like that's okay if you can take it as they're trying to tell you what they want to do and if that's something you want to have in the game. Uh, if, for example, they're telling you that you designed your game wrong or you don't know how your own game works, <laughs> don't play with them. <laughs> so, what are the types of playtests? Well, I will say that to start off, uh, when you're first starting out, the playtests that you're going to end up doing are going to end up like it's going to be you and your friends. Mm -hmm. um, your very patient friends. Your very patient friends. Yes. Uh, it, it took me a while before, like, now I have people saying, hey, the next thing that you have to play test, like, email me. Like, oh, cool, that's, like, less legwork for me. I don't have to find people. Um, but it's the, the types of play tests, well, I mean, I see that you have a list here, so I'm yep. going to go off of that. Um, so you have, you have your alpha, your beta, your blind, and your textual. Textual, that's a weird one. Um, so the, the, alpha, the, the alpha test is like you're basically just testing it to see if this idea works. Mm -hmm. um, and I've done that before, I do that all the time because I always have tons of ideas and 80% of them are rotten. But I always have to like, let's see if that works. Ooh, no, that failed spectacularly. All right, awesome, I gotta make something else. But then the beta is basically you had an idea that worked and you actually built a framework of a game around that idea and now you need to make sure that that as a whole now works. Um, the blind test is actually the most important one for yeah. me, uh, which is the you hand it to someone else and you see if they can run it. Yeah. Uh, that is probably one of the most important. <laughs> I would say yeah. the most um, important, yeah. honestly. As an example, how many of you have gotten free stuff for After <laughs> the War? That is a blind play test. <laughs> what? Well, I didn't pick uh, one of those. That's right. Um, <laughs> no, it, it does too, because again, um, what I like to do is sit in on someone's game and let them run it. Mm -hmm. And I'll just sit there and listen to them because 
they will interpret the rules how the, you know they're written. They will you know go okay, this is what I think it means, and then I'm sitting there going okay, I wrote that poorly. I need to yeah. go back and redo that because you know they're you know it, this game is not about like the Amish mafia. You know, it's uh, but it's coming off Amish Mom, which would probably be a really cool game. <laughs> it will find the holes in your rules very quickly. Yes. Yeah. I wrote a LARP recently, a deep sea LARP, and I'm sitting in the darkness with the players, and they're like, "Oh, we're gonna do this." I was like, "No, don't, don't, don't do that." But like, then I could go back and I could fix the rules, and I saw where I wrote them very weakly, and it was open yeah. for multiple interpretations. So you play it physically in the dark. Mm. Yes. We can talk. Yes. I, I <laughs> so to answer what is a bad playtester is somebody who sends you a page worth of edits that you need to do. Yeah. Well, you forgot the G on that word. And it gets really pedantic. Like, yeah. I have an editor. Uh, yeah. I just need you to check out the rules. You're like, you're not the editor. You're yeah. the playtester, okay? okay. No, no. This isn't the final version. Yeah. It's okay. That is actually what textual playtesting oh, qualifies is as. Is that what it is? In it's that. Uh, so blind playtesting is... Uh, can someone take the rules and run it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, text rule is, here's the rules. Uh, now, uh, can you run it as written? What is unclear in the text? Oh. Uh, so it, so I, one I, is, can you play the game? And I'm the other one is, together. can you play the text? Yeah. I didn't and realize it was separate. So that, that's how I divided that Makes sense. separately. Um, I make I like my playtesters multitask. Yeah. <laughs> so they have to do it all at do the it same all. time. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair. Uh, so um, some useful tactics that you've seen for playtesting. Um, good friend of mine, Mark Richardson, any award-winning cartographer for 7C and creator of Headspace. What? Yes. You uh, know Mark? <gasps> Mark Richardson. I know. Um, Can I touch your what, hand? His, his general, <laughs> Has he shook your hand? Because, uh, yeah, I want to yes. shake your hand because you shook his hand. Yeah. Um, so his tactic is a very wise one. Whenever you get playtest feedback, write it down. Just write it down. Don't think about it. Just it's in a book. And then a week or two later, go back into your book and then go through the things and think about which of these you're going to discard completely because it's useless. Which of these, oh, that's, that's, a, that's food for thought. And which of these are bloody brilliant, and you just need to use yeah, these steal, and integrate into your design. Steal them. What I did. Use the right word. I, yeah, really. I went on RPG. <laughs> Liberate. Yeah. Unpaid adoption. Yeah. You know, yeah no, no. Playtesting credits. Yes. I um, went on RPG Net and started a thread um, for Mythic D6, and I was like, hey, if you guys play the game, if there's something in there, write down what page it's on, Credit yourself because I will put you in the book as, you know, uh, uh, you'll get credit for it and tell me what it is and why it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And yeah, some people will come back with great stuff and some people, you know, they're, you know, two spaces after your uh, period, really? And you're just like, come on, dude. <laughs> you know, really or. Stop that, yeah, the, the, the two this spaces. Is, yeah, just. Yeah, the, uh, Detroit. It's not for me. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't use periods. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, <laughs> that was yeah, all the but, way. But the thing is, too, is that then other playtesters can see what they've written mm -hmm. in that thread, and they can see it and interpret it. And uh, so you're getting like peer feedback from all the different peers because they're peer. Uh, 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 um, can't think of the word. 
can't use my words, but they're looking at other people's playtest stuff and going through that as well. Um, so yeah, uh, crowdsource. And also, if you do a Kickstarter, give away like your betas and your alphas, and people will come back and they will find all sorts of stuff that you thought you put in the rules, but it's like, you know, in a folder someplace that you didn't actually put in the text. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, so... Yeah, uh, giving stuff away for free is not necessarily a bad thing because, you know. The you, early stuff. Yeah, yeah, true. The other stuff you'll just find on those storage sites. So Jerry gave you great advice because one of the things that solo designers really struggle with is organizing a playtest, right? So we worked with Evil Hat on this. Yes. And they did the playtest and it was huge. It was hundreds of people. And it was awesome because we were able to reach out to an international audience that we wouldn't have been able to done. Had I had to do that myself, wouldn't have been quite as extensive so Jerry's idea like if you're running a Kickstarter and you give away your alpha and get some feedback like that is a, a, a way to do it if you have a hard time organizing a playtest. Um, I would also say what I end up doing with my blind playtesters is usually whenever I design something I know where the things that I want tested mm -hmm. like I'm like cool um, the strength attribute, I don't need you to test that. It's strength, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're doing this thing in a combat, I need you guys to try that out and tell me how it does. And usually what I'll do is I'll give my playtesters a questionnaire of like, in this section, how did that work? Did it work well? Was it overpowered? Do you think it was underpowered? Was there something that was missing? Like, I ask tons of questions and I, and I usually get, usually get those, answers, those questions answered. Um, so I would say that, like honestly, like, cause that's the thing, it's like when you design a system, you know, like, you know, like 50 to 60% of it is pretty much going to be boilerplate. So you really want those play tests to focus on the things that you think may be problematic or may need some tweaks and stuff like that. So you really want to focus your play tests, not make them all just huge general play tests. Right, just, good. hey, what did you think? It was great. Yeah. And he's like, oh, that doesn't help me at all. <laughs> That's right, right, I right know. This rule. Oh, yeah. I thought that rule worked really well, but it was like that. Cool. That's good feedback that I can use. Mm -hmm. So, uh, can someone talk about roses and thorns? Uh, I can. Sarah can. Excellent. Thank you. I, I was also, but yeah. Uh, so roses and thorns uh, is is literally something I use all the time. Uh, and that's where you go around the table and everybody can say one positive thing because they want to tell you something nice, <laughs> but then they have to tell you something constructive. And kind of phrasing it that way helps people get over the idea that they're being mean to you. And you should do it too. You have to model that behavior for your play testers, especially if they've never done it. Um, now the other thing uh, to think about is, you know, I mentioned my home group has their specific challenges because they're lovely people. Uh, also mm -hmm. running it at conventions is important because mm -hmm. it is strangers who are going to be playing your game, hopefully, because they've given you money. Um, so also think about uh, what you want to do in that respect with playtesting because there is a, a gaming convention called Metatopia. It's held in uh, New Jersey uh, by Double Exposure. Um, if you're a new uh, designer, uh, with minority status, women, people of color, LGBTQIA. And throw a plus in there. Plus. Plus. There you go. The Indie Developer Network. Uh, game to that that. IGDN. Thank you. Yes. Booth 2545. Um, mm. Actually has a sponsorship <laughs> that helps uh, 
minority designers go there. Mm -hmm. And it is a playtesting convention yeah. uh, where the purpose of it is game designers bring their new uh, work there and have, for the most part, pretty good experienced players who know how to give play or feedback. Um, so that's something you can also consider if you're, if you're able to go. You can also do an ash can. Does everybody know what an ash can is? So this is a $10 ash can that's for sale at the IGDN booth. It's called Becoming. This is a second edition of a game that's already out there that I helped work on. Um, having an ash can, which is to say an inexpensive version of your game so that people can pick it up as an easy buy, right? They can try it out and be like, ah, you know. And that's another great way to get really good feedback. And in fact, in the back page of this ash can, it talks about, hey, we'd love to hear your feedback. And that's a great way to reach out to an audience that you're not going to be able to personally interact with. So if you want to put something like that together. Well, and, 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 and what Sarah was saying before about running at conventions, it kind of bounces off of what I said earlier, which is you're going to be your playtest team mm -hmm. in the beginning. And you're going to run it with your friends, and you're going to go to your FLGS, and then you're going to end up going to your local cons, and you're going to end up running it in a lot of places. Um, me and Jerry are currently working on this game called Rune, which is an amazing game. Um, and uh, I actually took it to um, AndoCon, which was over in Georgia, and I ran like two or three playtest sessions. And I like wrote it up. I'm like, hey, if you sign up for this game, you are playtesting this game. It is probably not going to be good. Um, <laughs> Maybe don't put but it the that good way. thing, the good thing is that it was though. <laughs> that was, that good. was the good thing is that the, the, it was um, the accidental surprise. But I did the roses and thorns at the end, and I said, "Can you tell me something you like, something you didn't like?" And I got a lot of really good feedback, and now it's a pretty polished thing. So yeah. That <laughs> he laughed. That's right for now. <laughs> for now, until we ruin yeah. it. You haven't seen the Google Docs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so are there any other key playtesting questions? I think. Uh, and if not, uh, I'm actually just going to push all the audience questions to the Q&A section, and okay. then we'll do that. Because we're running over time because there's lots of good no. stuff to talk about. Never. So, introduction to publishing. So I won't actually collect questions, although if we have time at the end, we'll absolutely solicit them. Um, we've gotten a bunch from you already, so thank you. Um, cold Hard Facts. Jerry, why don't you take over and oh. tell people about the cold hard facts? Okay, this is my cold hard facts. Now, I, um, before like I uh, published like role playing games, I published comic books, and uh, most of you have probably never heard of them because like they didn't really go anywhere. But I've done it, and I've done it. Everything that you could, well, not everything you could do wrong because I haven't been arrested yet. However, <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> But, um, I thought that was convicted. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's true. I have been. Yes, that's right. I've never. They they haven't stuck. But um, <laughs> the thing is, is that I will never tell anyone not to like pursue their dream. Mm. Like you have a dream, you want to do a game, do the game, do whatever you want. If you want to create, you know, a piece of art, create that piece of art. Because to me, role playing is not necessarily just a hobby. It's a piece of my lifestyle. Um, it's something that I enjoy. It, it's infused in everything that, like, you know, in my house. If you go in my house, there's games everywhere. There's, it, I'm, I'm all about it. So I will never tell you not to pursue your dream. If you've got a fire in your belly, do it. Because ultimately it's going to fulfill you and it's going to make you a, a, a good human being. Um, that being said, there's a lot of pitfalls that people fall into. Um, there's the vanity publishing, which um, 
most, I would say, even though like, you know, it might sound kind of derogatory, most game designers start out as just a vanity publishing house. You want, you want to see that game, someone else is not going to publish it for you, so you're going to front your own money and you're going to do it for yourself. Um, so, most of this, um, the first thing that you guys create, the first thing that you guys publish will probably suck, but you will love it, but it will suck. It will be bad. It'll be that like, it'll be like that uh, that that child that you had that's putting cigarettes out like on your couch, and you're like, oh, I don't love you, but I love you, and you will do it. But the thing is, is know what you're doing so that you know that you know. It's better than on your arm. Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, they'll do that when you're asleep. But um, but the thing is, is you know everyone's gonna make like these mistakes, and a lot of them I've seen happen, like. Um, in 2002, by the time like I published my game, I had already done like a lot of like weird publishing things that you shouldn't do, or a lot of things that were old model. And since the industry is changing, you had to transition over. Um, and people were doing weird stuff, like people would just print books and just think that they're magically going to get into distribution. Like there was a guy who printed like 5,000 books, hardcovers. It was like 400 pages, and. You know, he went to like a Gamma, which is a trade show convention, and he was like, yeah, you know, I'm, it's really hard, you know, selling these books. I sold like, you know, 30 here. And I'm like, what do you, you don't sell books here. You know, it's, you come here to talk to retailers and he was selling them to the retailer at the convention. And I was like, well, what are you doing for distribution? And he kind of looked at me like, mm, what? And I'm like, you, you printed books without actually doing all the groundwork first. And this guy, I don't know if he had like a trust fund or if he won the lotto. <laughs> But he printed books and had 5,000 books, and he was giving, he tried to give me like cases of them. And I was like, no, I'm cool, dude. I'll, you know, I'll take one because, you know, you know, I like books. You know? <laughs> but, um, don't do that. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but yeah, yeah, he, yeah, do not do that. Um, and this is something like, yeah, because when you had sent me like the file, like I had noticed, and looks like we're probably going to bullet point over most of this, but, um, one thing to remember is when you guys do your thing, don't think you're competing with like a larger company because you're not because there's no way you can. So don't even, you know, unless like you guys come up with something that is the next coming or if you guys figure out a way uh, to like uh, make people like margarine again, it's not going to happen. You know, <laughs> you guys are making a game and people try to competitively price their books with like, you know, like Paizo or um, yeah, wizards, and it's like, well, they sell their books for like you know twenty dollars. I'm gonna sell mine. It's like, listen, they're printing like you know ten, fifteen, twenty thousand books, and you're gonna be printing like five hundred to a thousand, and it's just not gonna work for you. Mm -hmm. So, you're not competing with them. What you're doing is selling your book. Um, you're making your book, and you're selling it to your audience. That you know you will find, even if they have to come and like look at the wall in which you wrote your game on, they will find your game and they will appreciate your game. But don't think like, yeah, I'm gonna be the next like Paizo. I'm gonna do this. It's like, no, just do your little thing, and it will happen. Um, can, can I? Yeah, go for it. Get uh, in there, man. I'm, I'm going to entirely counterpoint everything he just right. said. Right. Oh. Because yeah. that's my job here. Right. Um, I think that the first thing that you need to do is you need to you need to know where it is that you want to end up when you're jumping into the industry. Uh, when I jumped into the industry, I looked at those bigger companies and I said, one day I want a giant company that I'm going to have dozens of game lines and I'm going to have employ tons of people and all of that stuff. And that's what that's the that's the road that I'm on. 
Uh, and it did start off with just me, and then it was me and my editor, and then now it's me and my editor and one of my developers, and now it's me and my editor and developer, and like I'm growing, ex you know, little by little, and eventually I'm gonna hit that. But I didn't come in just to publish a game, and like that's it. Like I came in to make a statement, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, it's I came in to make my mark on the industry, and that's what I'm here for. And that's not what everybody is in here for. And that's a, a question you need to ask yourself when you come in. Mm -hmm. Do you just want to write that cool game and have people play it? Awesome, that's great. Do that. Um, but are you looking, or are you looking to come in and work on other, you know, titles and like become known in the freelancer markets and whatnot? There's that too. There's layout. There's editing. There's tons of ways to enter into all of this. And I think, I think you just kind. Of, I mean, yes, there's going to be like. Oh, I just so happened to luck upon this great job or something like that. But I think you really do need to have a clear vision of where it is that not only you want to be, but where you want that product to go. No, absolutely. But, you know, also be realistic, too, because a lot of people, they will, they will front the money and do the game. Yeah. And then they will spend, you know, like 10 grand because they'll get... There's one perfect example that we won't mention, but he got kicked out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he spent a ton of cash sponsoring. $25,000. Yeah, $25,000 sponsoring Gen Con. Yep. And it blew my, I'm like 20. Oh, his wife's money. <laughs> oh, man. One even his, just saying. Yeah, he yeah. was a little salty on this guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sorry, we don't like that. Guy. That's right, but, but anyway, but the thing is, is that on something and does 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 everyone know who this person is? No, no, no you won't because <laughs> because we won't give free publicity. Right, yeah. and, well, no, and and he didn't really make a splash yeah. besides like you know because he wanted to he wanted to run with the big guys. But the thing is, is that there's so much other stuff you can do to stepping stone up. Yeah. There's an expectation to it, and what I want is everyone to do their game without basically crippling yourself to do it. Um, there aren't many shortcuts, and if it looks like a shortcut, it may just be a big hole in the ground yes. that you're going to fall into. And remember that, like Jerry's saying, the majority of the industry is one person shops. Mm -hmm. um, they Hi. just Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they Sometimes hire. two. Yeah. Yep. They, they hire people where they can. I mean, that's how I started is um, uh, Ra uh, Jim Raji of Lamentations Flame Princess. He is a one-person shop, yet somehow puts out more books. Yeah, I know, man. Some I'm people like, are maniacs. I'm like, what are you doing? Um, and so he, he hired freelancers and hires writers. And, and he is a publisher and writer and designer. So he publishes stuff for other people. Mm -hmm. So you may do this and, and figure out, I don't want to be a publisher. Right. Because we see that a lot. Which is There's smart. A big to, to, to be clear, that is the correct decision. Don't yeah. be a publisher no. unless you want to be a publisher. Want to be a publisher. And a ton of other stuff. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of work. But if you decide that publishing games is something you want to do, most of the time, one pe people sh person shop, few game lines, not not their full time job. Yes. That is the majority of the industry. Yes. Then, then above that, you start having slightly bigger companies. For example, Magpie has four full-time employees and one part-time employee. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and we have multiple product lines. We want to be a publishing company. We kind of have an art co-op model uh, for the designers, but you know, it's that's how we pay everybody, and that's how it's my full-time job. And then there's Paizo, and they're like way, way, way far away from everything down here. Um, a useful figure that people in this room should know. 
they just recently released um, some numbers on the size of the RPG industry. The entire RPG industry is valued at uh, $55 million last year. Boom. Yeah, that's not a lot of money, guys. For scale, <laughs> one Kickstarter for uh, 7th C, 2nd edition, uh, was valued at 1.3? Yep, 1.3 million dollars. So, and note that at least half that amount is taken up by Dungeons & Dragons plus Paizo. Mm -hmm. If you're dreaming of making this your full-time job, just realize it probably won't happen and that you need other income. Don't quit your job and decide to become a game designer. Let me just save you the grief. Don't do it. Um, it's not that you shouldn't follow your dreams. It's that if you don't know how realistic it is for you personally to be a full or part-time game designer or publisher, talk to people who can help sort of inform you as to how little money you're going to make. <laughs> I'm literally a thousandaire. Yeah, yeah, like selling a few hundred copies is great. And if you're only making like $20 a copy, and that's not cover price. Yeah, that's right, we'll, well go what, into that what, what I, What I will say to that, because of course I have to be the contrary voice here. That's right. Please do. Is that um, the industry rewards longevity. Yeah. Um, if you come out with a game and you're like, screw this, I didn't make enough money, well then go away. Um, but, <laughs> like, but like, your first game isn't going to make a lot of money, but it's laying groundwork for your second game. Oh, I remember you from that other game. Oh, I'm definitely going to yeah. pick this one up. And then the third game, oh wow, I like those yes. other two games, I'm going to pick this one yeah. up. And then it becomes an avalanche, right. and that's basically how I grew my entire your career. Empire. I've been doing this now for a decade, I've been doing it full time for about four years. Um, so it's it's definitely worth it. Like I pay other people's bills now with my company, and it didn't start that way. And every dollar I got, just like any good business person, you take every dollar you get in those first two or three years, and you buy put comics. it back in, what? You, no. and you buy comics, that's but right. you also but you put it back in another role playing game, and that's what you want to do. <laughs> that's a business expense. That is yes, it's okay. <laughs> wipe those off because I do it. So, uh, um, yeah. speaking of reinvesting into your company, let's talk about the things you're spending money on as yeah. publisher. Sure. Meow. So, one thing that you spend money on is freelance writers. So, here's some cold hard cash numbers that you want to pay attention to. The minimum amount that you are paying a freelance writer, and this is the minimum, is five cents a word. Otherwise, get out. Yeah. <laughs> Leave now. <laughs> if someone is offering to pay you less than five cents a word, I strongly recommend that you say no. There are companies that, um, some of them are only our small shops that are only offering four cents because times are tight. Some of them are exploitive and are offering 0.1 cents <laughs> a word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they're trying to pay you in weird stuff like, you know, like exposure. Cop, exposure. People die of exposure. Yeah, yeah true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My first gig was a third of a cent. Yeah, wow. don't, don't do that. Holy it's don't tempting to get that. credits, yeah. no. but be aware you're probably going to be in the back of the book in tiny little letters. It's not going to have your name on the front of the book, right? It's going to be like you, you'll have to go look with a microscope. Um, yeah. So if you make no money doing it, 
you will probably kick yourself because it takes hours and hours and hours yeah. to write these. Value things. yourself. Yeah. Because if you don't, and also too, if you value yourself, other people will value you. Mm -hmm. Because if you're like, listen, I'm not going to work for, you know, X amount. Right. They might come back. Either they'll say, okay, deuces, or they'll go, okay, how about this? Right. Um, because, yeah, uh, there's very few people who can pay like a ton of cash, but if they're planning on making money on it, mm -hmm. they should actually have to like, uh, you know, break you off something too. Because it's, it, 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 it's crazy. And yes, please, I would love to get a bunch of free artists and free writers because that would be the best because then I wouldn't have to pay for anything. But the thing is, is that, you know, I value my time and, um, you know, I respect the value of someone else's time. And, uh, and really, that's, that's what they're paying for. They're paying you, you know, to, for your resource. And your, your talent is a resource. And, you know, you need to value your resources. And if they're not willing to pay you, again, you guys could be up here. It's, you know, trust me, they let me up here so you guys could be up here. So, you know, value your time, value your resources, your talent, and, you know, you know um, get what you think you're worth. You know, don't, and don't worry about what other people are getting. You know, get what you think you need. Um, to make it work. I, I literally hire freelancers because I don't feel like doing stuff. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. man. I feel like I have like 5,000 words I'm supposed to write. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna hire somebody to write that. I don't feel like writing it. Yeah. <clears throat> um, one of my best experiences was having a game that I was working on with a friend. And we had a 17,000 word uh, core of the game. It's like, you know what? <laughs> I think I know one of the designers of the original core game. I can just hire Brian Edgar to turn that into a full game, and it's yeah. going to be awesome. Yep. Magic. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so you can hire writers. Yep. You can also hire editors. And by can, I mean will. Oh, let's yeah. talk about editors. <laughs> I'm an editor, um, as well as a proofreader. Mm -hmm. Many of you will be tempted because art is expensive and words are expensive. You will be so tempted to just have somebody edit your book. And <laughs> yeah. that's actually proofreading, right? Grammar check, spelling check, but you need a developmental edit of your book. Please do not publish your book without a developmental edit. And real editors are pricey. So if you have somebody who's like, oh, I can edit this for one cent a word, that is not editing, that is proofreading, okay? You also need a proofreader at the very end, and one cent a word is appropriate to pay for proofreading. But editors, uh, and a good editor, somebody you can work with who's gonna push back against yes. your ideas and help clarify your vision, is one of the most important people. I mean, Aloy was like, yeah, it was me and an editor. That's one of the very first people that you should find for your team is a great editor, even if they can't work with you. Like, and, I, and I will point out that I said it was just me. <laughs> then it was me and an editor. Because right. my very first product, I did not hire an editor. And yeah. it's it yeah. very sloppy and it's terrible. Yeah. Uh, so and, and editors, yeah. Um, and it still sold well, which was weird to me, because I go back and read it and I'm like, what? Yeah, me too. <laughs> like my stuff is like Frankenstein stuff. It's like, <laughs> But no, an editor, and they're not, yeah, they just don't look and make sure that you're spelling stuff correctly. They're looking at holistically, they're like, okay, how does this make sense? Like on this page you wrote this, but you're contradicting it here. Um, they're, they're doing a lot more than just going through and, you know, making sure like, you know, you don't sound like, you know, an idiot. They are there to, you know, to help facilitate what you're saying. They're basically, um, 
they're like your Metatron in a sense. They are yes. basically taking the word of God and speaking it to the uh, masses. Um, they're also effectively co-designers in certain situations. Yeah. Like, I was just gonna say, like, what we're kind of gesturing at is there are actually different kinds of editors. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so, for example, I do dev editing, which is I will go in and look at your mechanics and the way your game is set up, and I will tell you this is bullshit. Go rewrite it. <coughs> um, and someone else can't do that. But I only dev edit specific things. I only dev edit Powered by the Apocalypse. Someone asked me to dev edit a fake game, and I'm like, no, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, I, that's not my, my not my thing. You should find someone who knows exactly how mm -hmm. the best way to, to do great. fake. Fine. Yeah. Um, so developmental editing, as I use it, is more about mechanics and, and all of that. Then there's also a clarity of prose, which for me, Amanda Valentine, I gave her Nightmares with Bluebeard's Bride, uh, but she made sure that people can read that book and run it. That's right. They make sure that you can write good. Yeah. Amanda, make it write good. Thank you. And those of you who like editing, that's actually a decent way to make a living in the industry as opposed to being a writer and a designer. Just saying. Um, in part because you are editing all of the words, not just some of the words. So you, you will get often paid less than the writers. You're not getting five cents a word for editing. No. But you're having to edit the entire book. So you, you get a lot more volume. Um, uh, artists, you are going to, sorry, you are not going to need art. However, it's a huge value add. And you're probably going to need art at least for the cover. Because how many of you saw this and said, oh, that, that's shiny? Shiny. That is because I um, bought reuse rights for an existing piece of art from an Hugo Award winning, multiple Hugo Award winning artist, Julie Dillon, so I could use it for my cover. Yep. So art is very useful in communicating setting. Uh, in all sorts of signaling, like for instance, I have a Muslim woman here. That is a sign that my game is welcoming of a variety of religions and it's not Islamophobic, for instance. Um, so it does a, it's a very important thing for communicating a lot and a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, budget accordingly. Yeah, yeah, and what Jason's saying about rights, like, once you start interacting with a freelance artist, you're going to suddenly learn all these new terms and new things mm -hmm. that you didn't know before. Like they're going to ask you what bleed you need and what DPI they're supposed to be producing the end product at. And you might also get someone who's like, well, I only work in physical medium, so is it okay if I just send you a, a photo with my iPhone? <laughs> um, so this is all stuff that you have to learn about in order to communicate with them because as a freelance artist, it's not my job to teach you, although I probably will. Um, so yeah, so that's when you're starting to get into more of the technical aspects of publishing that you need to know up front exactly what you need from your artist, otherwise you're gonna waste a lot of money. Um, a useful note, a lot of stuff, we're really like touching the very surface of it, and uh, there's detailed hours of panels on the yes. RPG Design panel cast that if you've gotten the card, it's already on there at genesisoflegend.com. Mm -hmm. um, so you can, there's art on a budget and how to work with artists and illustrators. And like there's hours of content there that you can get in from Metatopia. Yes. Um, what was the name of that? Uh, RPG Design Panelcast. Um, uh, layout 
Yes, layout's very important too. Um, don't do it in Word. <laughs> I know, I, I did one book and, don't, don't and Microsoft Publisher. No. It was, it's pretty bad. <laughs> PowerPoints is much better. Yeah, but layout. I still have water. I, know, I didn't come down here. Um, I'm not saying between the two of you. <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah, to it in PowerPoint. Because then you can animate it. But um, uh, layout is uh, really important, too. Like, well, all of these things, I mean, when they're all done well, the, 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 the finished product, the artifact of the book, you, you know, you'll see it. The proof is in the pudding. And I'm sure when you guys go through the hall and look at all the books out there, you will see that some people... They hired a layout artist, or they were the layout artist, um, you know, for you know, good or ill. Um, but it will layout is really important. And some people they don't believe they actually need layout, but there's so many things that just physically reading a book, you know, you're trained to look at and how you're going to interpret it. That some people they when it's done poorly, it it actually kind of physically, literally physically hurts to read it. Mm -hmm. um, because Page numbers, margins, yeah, just, like all that stuff matters. Yeah, like the density of like the text mm -hmm. on the page, you know, all you know, the all the goofy stuff that people want, like you know, like the the, the border art, mm -hmm. and you'll see like some people will go nuts with that, and it's like there's more border art than there is like text on a page, you know, because it's so thick. But um, layout is really important, and layout also is kind of like. Um, uh, it has a trend to it because there's certain things that even though they're done correctly when we look at it today You'll go man. That's kind of antiquated looking now It's kind of like you know when you listen to music from like the 90s or the 80s and you can like you know You'll hear it and you're like that's definitely a 90s song or that's definitely a 90s book the way it's laid out Yeah, um, but it is incredibly important uh, Layout and, and honestly like again, if you go the publishing route and you end up becoming a small business owner because that's what you would be Yes. Um, as a small business owner, you need to learn how to cut corners. What I did is mm -hmm. I taught myself layout and I taught yep. myself how to do everything uh, so that I didn't have to pay somebody else to do it. Uh, so. uh, and note, the only thing that you can't do that for mm -hmm. out of this entire set is editing. Is editing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you cannot edit your own work. Yeah. I'm um, an editor and I do not edit my own work. <laughs> um, however, one thing that you can do with these four categories is barter. That is common in the industry and fine, because if I can do layout, um, and this is worth about a thousand bucks worth of work, mm -hmm. um, I can then uh, do uh, layout for Anna, and then say, hey, Anna, can you edit my thing for me? It's about a thousand dollars worth of work. This was laid out by Jason Pitt and his uh, well, and Daniel Solis, because I lifted and his Daniel template. Um, <laughs> so, um, so we're able to do an exchange, and that way I can afford an editor, yep. even though I'm putting in my time instead of my money. Yep. That's and it's, the, it's an equivalent value. That's legit. Yep. That is wrong. a good way to cut corners. And I've gotten people to actually do stuff, like Greg Stolze, I've had him do stuff, and like, we'll go like, hey, how about I do some of this, and you do Just some of that. Just make sure it's roughly equivalent, yeah. right? Like, you want to make sure it's a fair deal. Um, and then, oh, what do we got? Like, uh, printers. printers. Uh, big thing you need to know. There are effectively uh, three categories of printing. Start with print-on-demand. You can use drive-through RPG, and they do print-on-demand, uh, and that can produce some moderately reasonable quality products for very relatively affordable prices, and you can print 
one copy. Um, this is great. Um, one copy for three bucks a copy. You sell that at a local convention for ten bucks. Oh, like that? That's that's lunch. <laughs> that that's safe. There's no huge investment. Digital print run. I'm going to print two hundred copies, three hundred copies. So it's effectively the print-on-demand model, but they do sort of batches, and you get bulk discounts. Um, tend to be slightly higher quality, uh, slightly better prices. And then offset. Offset. You are not going to do a metallic foil off a of print-on-demand. <laughs> yeah. That'd be awesome. Um, I wish. But, uh, um, you aren't doing hardcovers on print-on-demand. The, the prices are just terrible. Um, so these two are offset, whereas Becoming is uh, print-on-demand. And you can tell, even though it's a nice quality book, we're still only selling it for $10 because... Yes. Um, so uh, print-on-demand is what you want if you are getting less, if you have confirmed less than about 100 sales. If you've confirmed less than about 500 sales, digital print-ons. If you've confirmed more than 500 sales, then offset becomes a reasonable choice. Um, those are expensive and you get huge volume discounts as you go above like 2,000. Like uh, 1,000 is sort of the minimum print run at that size. Um, and you're putting up a decent amount of money up front yes. for it. Um, don't jump immediately to offset. We mm -hmm. used to only have offset as an option. We're no longer in the dark ages. So take full advantage of the fact that we got really cheap options for small print runs to start. And when you're ready for offset, you'll know when you're ready for offset. Hey, Jason. Uh, Jason. Yes. Do you want to skip the questions since yes, we're down? We're uh, since we only have 10 minutes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 15 um, what? Let, let's spend one minute oh, and say man. what the other things are. I worked and then on my dance routine. Kickstarters. <laughs> You're going to be running a Kickstarter to get money in this industry. Distribution and retail. That's a later problem. Yes. When you're ready. That's uh, right. Uh, when you're ready, talk to the Indie Game Developer Network. Yes. Uh, at booth 2545. Yes. We'll say, yeah. Uh, well, or and tell you what you need to know yes. uh, for all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, shipping. Oh my God, nightmare. Um, it is always ten bad. times more expensive than you think, especially if you ship internationally. Uh, yeah. Assume it's going to cost more than you think. Yes. Um, marketing. You can have multiple panels specifically on this. Mm -hmm. um, you are doing things like uh, running games for people, talking to large panels of uh, interested people and giving them useful things like, like information this. about publishing and design. <laughs> giving people free games. Mm -hmm. This is all a giant marketing exercise. That's why I just gave you all free stuff. <laughs> Done. All right. So, <laughs> oh, and by the way, buy our stuff. That's right. Booth 2545 at the Indie Game Developer Network. Same thing for this and becoming. That's right. Or go to IPR. Where yeah. you can get a yeah. IPR and ITD and booth. That's right. Yeah. So That's where they sell my trash. We're going to go through the questions. Yes, to questions. Booth, which is where my stuff is. Excellent. So, questions. Let's lightning around this because y'all gave way too many good I've questions. got a game. It's play tested. How do I get to market? Well, do we, do we, we want to take their questions? questions? Oh, That's right. Yeah, so, uh, so 
I'll re yeah, well, I'll do one of these lightning round, and then one from the crowd, and then okay. do it that way. Sure. Since, uh, okay, yeah, so how do we turn it? I've got a game, it's playtest, how do I bring it to market? Who wants to answer that? Um, how do you bring it to market? Well, one thing, a lot of people, um, like I said before, they don't realize that you can sell them on your own at conventions, and that's a viable way of doing it. Like, you get a booth, you go there, you sell them yourself. You'll make the best margin that way. And, um, or you can sell it through distribution. I, you know, I, you, you do a little bit of both. Like, um, Gen Con and Origins and stuff like that, conventions, personally, for me, are mostly just for marketing. You can make a lot more money. Like when I sell books at uh, Gen Con or uh, Origins, I make a lot more money because I'm not sharing anything with the distribution. Because through distribution, if you've got a $50 book, you're only getting about $20 for that book. And out of that $20, now you're taking out all your other production costs. So a $20 book will like net you like seven bucks, you know. Um, and that's through distribution. However, through distribution, I am known in Germany just like David Hasselhoff. Uh, so, um, and you know, like you get your books in a lot of different bookstores. You're not just, you know, trying to go around, you know, as a huckster and like, you know, with all your uh, snake oil in the back trying to sell books. Um, so I would uh, find a fulfillment company because a lot of distributors won't touch you because uh, you're so price small. Any revolution is great for that. Yeah. yeah. So you want a fulfillment company who will sell to the larger distributors. And a lot of that, you can do that here. You can network here and find people to help you. You can go to Gamma. Um, and find like distributors who will help you or who will like rep and carry your book. Um, but the thing is, is even before you even print this thing and spend a ton of money on it, figure out how you're going to get this book to market. Because if you don't, you're just, you'll have them in your warehouse. I have a lot of books in my warehouse, AKA my garage. But um, you know, I just do that so I don't have to pay warehousing costs at the fulfillment. I just send them more books when they need them. But um, All right, question from the crowd. Yes. Uh, let's start here, because I saw that hand first. Thanks. Eloy, let's say we're inspired by your example and want to teach ourselves layout. Mm -hmm. What are the first resources <laughs> we should do? What's the, what's the what? First resources. Google. Um, oh, get a, get a, create, huh? Bye. Get a, get an Adobe <laughs> Creative Suite account. It's 50 bucks a month. And, um, and you can write that. it off. Non designers right. design. And start learning it. Yeah. That's basically, I mean, uh, my layout that I did at first was terrible. But I eventually got up to the point where you know it was moderately good. Mm -hmm. And try to copy existing things that always yes. exist. Yep. Uh, and, uh, right. Another question from the preset list. Uh, do, do, do. Uh, sorry, we've got a lot of really good questions. Um, so sad. Outside of mechanical or thematic design of a game, what which part of d design of development? Um, is the most challenging for you and in what way? Oh my god, that's a very complicated question. I don't think we have time for that question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you guys want to ask us like questions one-on-one -on -one after yeah. the panel, they're like a little more... Because some of these questions you could do a whole panel on the question. Yeah, listen to crap. Uh, yeah. We've got a lot of awesome What's, ones. Yeah. Uh, how do you sell a game to a publisher? It's hard. Just don't try at this point. Some uh, so publishers yeah. accept uh, yeah, submissions. Some questions. All right. How best do you turn a whale into an ash can? Oh, that actually is a really great question. So you, um, if you, let's say you have a 300,000 word masterpiece, hmm. uh, hire an editor is <laughs> probably hmm. the easiest way. You have to start boiling your game down to real essentials. Like not everything is gonna be this short and elegant, but you have to like cut it down and you're not gonna kill your own babies. So that's why you hire an editor. 
So um, I promise, like, <laughs> all these tiny details about the history of your world that you think are absolutely essential for the playing of the game, they're probably not. Bullet points. Yeah. Okay. All right. Another question. Uh, let's go here. Um, do any of you guys have any experience with copyright in terms of, like, if you wanted to turn like a game of, you wanted to make like a Game of Thrones themed game or something using another source material to make a game of your own and what does that look like? You have to pay a lot of money. Yeah, yeah for Game of Thrones. And you, yeah, I mean like well, for, for big IPs, you have to get licensing rights. It's not just something like, oh, I'm gonna write a Game of Thrones RPG, especially if they're recognizable. Some people will do like, file off the serial numbers. Be careful, you get too close to the actual intellectual property, you can get yourself in a lot of heat. But yeah, you can contact, especially for lesser known properties, just contact them and say, I want to make a game. They might um, say yes. All right, we have a question in the back of the book. Uh, how, did you, for the, how did you secure uh, the rights for when you wanted to adapt uh, your game to an existing system? What's the process for that? This? Yeah. Uh, we, so we had worked with Evil Hat before, but Evil Hat, it's open. Like, you, anybody can write a game in Fate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah all the it, all the different systems. I'm sorry, I didn't mean. It's okay. All the different systems have their own rules. Sometimes it's just hey, pick up a copy of the book and just write it. Others you have to contact the publisher directly and ask. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah some, so, so we published this usually. through Evil Hat, and they own the system. Yeah. But had we wanted to just write a game with Fate, we could have done that. All right, another question. We got one here. Deadlines, like, do you use them? How do you? Use yes. Them? Yes. How do you, how do you deal with so it doesn't take five years. <laughs> yeah. What, what I'll do is I'll buy one of those desk calendars mm -hmm. and I will just mark it out because that's what a therapist told me to do once because like I would just get crazy about like, I need to do this, I need to do that, but they told me like bite-sized pieces, mark it out, say, okay, we're gonna have all of this done like right now. I've got deadlines for like, you know, freelancers. Mm -hmm. So it's like, have this done by the 15th, you know, and I've, I've already built in an excuse time because the 15th, yeah. Uh, the 15th means, you know, I kind of really wanted it, like, you know, on the 7th. But, you know, I'm going to give you to the 15th so that then, you know, then I can start, like, going, hey, where's the stuff? You know, you've had a month to do it, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do deadlines because that will give you the impetus to actually continue on to do it. Because if you don't, you'll be like, yeah, just get around to it. Freelancers often are you do, doing this part-time. Yes. So build in lots of time. Yes. Recognize yeah. that you think something's going to show up on the 15th. It may show up on the 30th. You may have to True. pound the person for the thing. So if you have like printing deadlines, stuff like that, just yes. make sure to yeah. load your project with plenty yes. of extra. And time. if you're printing overseas, uh, seas, do not doing it. Do it uh, during the Chinese, Chinese New, Year, New Year because yes. they will shut no. down. Do not do China it. literally disappears. And, 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 on, in, the, uh, and on the other end of that, if it's just you and it's your game and whatever, just get it done with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> key thing: good, fast, cheap. Everyone in this industry is cheap. Therefore, it's good or it's fast. <laughs> Always choose good over fast. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, right. Question here. Yeah. What uh, What motivates you to create a second edition of your own rules? Uh, basically, <laughs> what? Well, yeah, I, I don't know. I can answer it because I've done it three times. I know. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, what ends up happening for me is I, you evolve as a designer. Uh, for instance, part-time about second edition that I was telling you guys about, there was a first edition and it was a gorgeous game at the time. And like a year ago, I went to go run it for somebody and I'm like, this is not where I'm at right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was like, this needs, I need to change this and all of this needs to just be completely different for me to enjoy my own game again. 
Uh, and it's and it's basically just, you know, because I'm not one of those, I'm not like one of those companies that's just like, oh, it, has it been, oh, it's time for another edition. You know, it's like, no, it's like, I played it and it, it just didn't feel right anymore and I needed to fix it because it's more a passion thing for me. So. If there are material changes, it's probably time for a new edition. Like this one has completely different mechanics for some of the things. Yeah. So that's when it's good to do. All right, we got one last question here. Uh, so quick, uh, how much per word should well, see, I work also outside of the industry, so <laughs> I will ask for a sense of word. Uh, but that is dependent on the editor. I mean, the industry standard usually is per page. So just go and Google it, and it like they'll be like, oh, this is a, a reasonable. And if somebody like way low walls it, make sure they understand what you need, and that what you need is not proofreading, but it's developmental editing. It's and ask for a sample stuff. edit. They'll, they'll do a couple pages for you and make sure that their style works with you. Um, so this is because we've got a really tight turnaround between panels, we're going to be cutting it here. However, some useful information for you. Uh, one, this entire panel has been recorded and will be available on the RPG Design Panelcast probably in about a month. Now they have our soul. Two, um, I'm going to try to work with the panelists to collect some answers to some of the audience questions that we received. And I'll probably post it uh, probably on uh, my site, justselegend.com, so that people can actually see the answers to these good questions. Um, advice specifically on making up Powered by the Apocalypse game. How do you acquire a publisher for your design? All of that. If you want to come and talk to us, you can. Uh, um, anybody who asked a question, I have actually five copies of our room quick start that me and Jerry designed together. So people who ask questions, come up and grab them. And if anyone has not gotten a free quick start, come here, get a free quick start.